Just a word of warning, the carnage you are about to hear is in fact when we tried to record a promotional introduction for the podcast. Sorry in advance. Oh, hi there. <laughs> oh, God. You've got to give some indication that it's well, starting. Oh, come on. That was my best oh, hi there. Oh, hi there. Welcome oh, to that Random... One, that one sounded oh. bad. Sorry. I, I screwed that second one up. You've got to be kidding me. <clears throat> oh, hi there. Welcome to Random But Memorable. Ah, oh, man, it's great to be here. I'm Matt. I'm Anna. And I'm Rue. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Rue. <laughs> We're here to present your children's television show. <laughs> Here's one I made earlier. And we're some of the team behind... Oh, Jesus Christ. Ah, do you remember that other time that we tried to do something scripted? Yeah. I'm dying. I'm, I'm back, I'm back, I'm back. It's all right. <clears throat> and we're some of the team behind 1Password. The password manager that keeps you, your family, and all your colleagues safe online. We bring you a new episode of Random But Memorable Fortnightly. Join us as we round up the latest security news in Watchtower Weekly. And interview some of the industry's leading voices. Settle in as we navigate the murky waters of cybersecurity. And just like our passwords, we like to keep things random but memorable. So expect the unexpected. Except for this wicked scripted intro. <laughs> <laughs> if you're loving what we do already... Please hit that. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> oh, my. Oh, my God. This is just the worst. I've never heard such a dictionary definition of maniacal <laughs> laughing as... <laughs> As the haunted Halloween special of your voice just echoing in my ears. I can't. Oh, God. Guys, I'm crying. It's a good start to the show when Rue starts crying. Okay, this probably is not going to work. This is real rough. But, you know, it provided some laughs. Right. All right. Enough of this. Let's get on with the ruddy show. Ruddy is very British. I, I, did it go a bit cockney as well? All right. Enough of this. Let's get on with the ruddy show. <laughs> Rue, can you do a cockney accent? All right, mate. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Enough of this. Let's get on with the bloody show. Hey. Oh, God. <laughs> Right, let's get down to Watchtower Weekly. Let's get on with the bloody show. <laughs> uh, NordVPN confirms it was hacked. This is the largest advertiser in cybersecurity, I would imagine. Uh, they, they just throw money at adverts. Has everybody else disappeared? <laughs> no. No, I'm still here. I'm just crafting a tweet about how I'm an adequate colleague. <laughs> so, should we get a little uh, Watchtower Weekly going here? I mean, yeah, we were before you got distracted. Oh, okay, great. Uh, so NordVPN. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it really is Halloween. Having deja vu. I'm going to go delete my tweet because I, you know, I don't use Twitter anymore. So. <laughs> what is this episode? <laughs> okay. NordVPN confirms it was hacked. Uh, this is uh, TechCrunch reporting. The popular virtual private network provider recently admitted that it was hacked following strong rumors that the company had been breached. Uh, it first emerged that NordVPN had an expired internal private key exposed, potentially allowing anyone to spin out their own servers imitating NordVPN. 
You know, like when a breach happens and then the first thing that anybody says is like, we have strong security or we believe in privacy or something like this. NordVPN said, this is an isolated security breach. Hack is too powerful a word in this case. (laughs) Are they redefining the word hack? Oh, man. I mean, it's not a smart thing to say, but it's their own fault, right? The the expired internal private key. Yeah, that's bad. But it's also their own fault because I, I really dislike how Every VPN company are selling themselves as the be-all, end-all answer to security. There was a great video out recently by Tom Scott, who posed himself as a sponsored YouTuber from a VPN company and said, like, this is actually what they want me to say. And this is actually how a VPN protects you. We'll link to that in the show notes because I think it's really important. But didn't NordVPN try and put some of the blame onto the rented server as well in this case? Yes. Yeah, they've they've basically said that they were using these these third party servers and, you know, the server itself didn't contain any user activity logs. Uh, none of our applications send user created credentials for authentication. So user and passwords couldn't be intercepted either. On the same note, the only possible way to abuse the website traffic was by performing a personalized and complicated man-in-the-middle attack to intercept a a single connection that tried to access NordVPN. NordVPN said they found out about the breach a few months ago but did not disclose it until the 21st of October because the company wanted to be 100% sure that each component within their infrastructure was secure. See, I call bull on that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's ridiculous. When you've confirmed that there's been a breach, you immediately disclose it. Because people that are relying on you to keep them safe need to know that they are potentially not safe. Understanding like that this is a targeted attack, if I was someone who, as part of my sort of personal threat model, thinks that I might be targeted, I'd be like, okay, well, I'm going to go and find another VPN provider for now if I think, you know, if that's part of my, my security stack. Yeah. Like as an end user, you want to be able to have the ability to make that choice and they're not giving people the opportunity to make that choice here. Yeah. Exactly. The uh, the security researcher said that this should be deeply concerning to anyone who uses or promotes these particular services. Yeah, I feel like this will not be the hit that it should be to advertising of VPNs in general as a cure rule to every security problem that people have. Yeah, I agree. All right, how about uh, we talk about the Google Pixel 4 and how its face unlock works if your eyes are shut. Now, okay. Is before we really get into this, I need I need you two to tell me: is this clickbaity? Like, is this a clickbait headline that that like we're going to get into it? I think it's a little bit clickbaity. The BBC have been up on their clickbait recently. They posted something the other day about all the things that are going to kill passwords, and it was all things that are biometrics that have a password behind it. Right. Okay. <laughs> but they just didn't mention that bit. Yeah. Okay. So uh, from from a report on the BBC, Google has confirmed the Pixel Four smartphone's face unlock system can allow access to a person's device even if they have their eyes closed. Now, there's got to be more to it than this. Like it can't. That's that seems like such an obvious thing to like not allow uh but it says this this could allow unauthorized access to the device by comparison apple's face id system checks the user is quote alert and looking at the phone before unlocking yeah it's it's not just that the eyes are open on apple's it's that the attention is there right you can't look in another direction it's got to be directly inattentive yeah i've unlocked with face id like while watching tv like i'll open up an app that has face id uh like one password the great password manager and uh, i'll be looking at the screen at the tv screen 
and then I'll glance down and that will be enough for it to like catch that I was attentive and it will unlock. Sometimes it very much catches me by surprise that I gave it enough attention to, to unlock. I mean, this is, yeah, this is just terrible. Terrible in a number of reasons. Like one, your threat model could be someone who lives with you, like a spouse or something, to be honest. Right. The amount of um, kind of spousal tracking wear and, and stuff like that. Like unlocking when you're asleep is like not nice. And then the other one, of course, is if you are, if you are dead. You don't really want people getting into your phone. You probably don't care at that point, but you still don't want people to get into your phone. And yeah, I feel like eyes closed is is a kind of big one. Yeah. Google said that concerns customers can can switch on lockdown mode, which deactivates facial recognition when they want enhanced security. I'd argue at enhanced security, the wording there. I'd probably say just straight up security. (laughs) Really? Yeah. What I find interesting is that like some leaked images of the pre-launch settings for the Pixel 4 had a setting called require eyes to be open. Uh, That didn't make it into the final shipping version, but it at least says that they thought about this. I just find this pretty fascinating that if there is the opportunity to toggle between like it requires your eyes open or not, that they decided that the default of eyes closed is okay. Yeah. Yeah, I just find Google's response like very relaxed and unbothered about this, which is something that surprised me really. And all they said in a statement is, we will continue to improve face unlock over time. But no, it just seems very blasé. <laughs> yeah, I agree. All right, so why don't we why don't we go through a little bit something new here? And I see you've you've tossed in a news roundup. Yeah. So this is like a what happened this week kind of thing, I guess. Yeah, it's kind of like. A new addition to Watchtower Weekly, so we're going to aim to summarise what else has been happening in the news, hopefully with kind of quick bullet point headlines. I think this is Anna's attempt at, to stop us rambling. Yeah, that's a good one. Hopefully we can cover more news, but in a shorter amount of time. Hopefully we can cover more news if Rue just shuts up. Oh, wow. Wow. All right. <laughs> All right. So let's hit the headlines then. White House cybersecurity chief gave the White House one hell of a resignation notice when he quit over practices he dubbed, quote, absurd, including the systemic purging of cybersecurity staff. The former chief's greatest complaint seemed to be that White House officials are prioritizing the president's comfort or convenience over actual computer security. You, you don't say. So Australia wants to use facial recognition to verify people watching porn. Australia's uh, Department of Home Affairs proposed to start scanning porn viewers' faces and matching them up with government photos to verify their age using its face verification service. And finally this week we have Equifax that used the word admin as both password and username for a portal that contains sensitive information including credit disputes, according to a recent class action lawsuit is this a story from like 2001 like, holy <laughs> crap like admin admin that'll be fine yeah as if they didn't learn their lesson i know a great one to go into when we're about to do hacks revisited amazing So last time on the last episode, we covered the first half of the great Sony hack. And here we are. We're going to dive into part two. This story is bananas. It's the craziest thing I've ever heard. I mean, the whole thing, the whole taking the whole thing down, the fact that it might be North Korea as as retaliation for the The North Korean regime has called the movie terrorism, an act of war, a moral attack on its leadership. Analysts say the North Koreans have a dedicated hacking capability that they've been working on for a few years. The North Korean government has the power and the capability and the means and the motive to do this attack. And if North Korea has the capability, it may also have the motive. 
so do we know if the allegations towards North Korea were true? I mean, probably. It's looking increasingly likely that North Korea was behind the attacks. Uh, 25 days into all this mess, the FBI confirms publicly that the government of North Korea was behind the Sony hack and the threats to moviegoers. In a statement, the FBI declared, quote, as a result of our investigation and in close collaboration with other U.S. government departments and agencies, the FBI now has enough information to conclude that the North Korean government is responsible for these actions, end quote. North Korea's actions were intended to inflict significant harm on a U.S. business and suppress the right of American citizens to express themselves. They also found striking similarities between the code used in this hack and attacks blamed on North Korea, which targeted South Korean companies and government agencies the previous year. Korea still deny all involvement to this day and say it was framed. Uh, take that for what you will. FBI statement was definitive. The North Korean government is responsible for the cyber attack on Sony. This is the first time the United States has accused a foreign government of a cyber attack against an American corporation. The attack was routed through servers in countries all over the world in an effort to hide its origin. But President Obama said North Korea is the sole culprit. The White House this evening is considering its response to that computer hacking attack against Sony Pictures Entertainment. U.S. corporations as well as government agencies get hacked every day. But the FBI said the destructive nature of this attack, coupled with its coercive nature, sets it apart from anything that's happened before. What's interesting to me, like, it, this seems like the kind of thing that they would just own up to. You're like, yeah, no, it was us. Yeah, absolutely. No, we didn't, we didn't want that film released. Yeah. Of course we did this. Or just come out against Seth Rogen. <laughs> right. Yeah. At the time, North Korea invited the U.S. to take part in a joint investigation of the Sony attack, claiming its innocence, but warning of, quote, serious consequences if the U.S. retaliates. I'd immediately do that. Oh, yeah. Like, if I did it, I'd immediately be like, hey, yeah. do you want to do, a, like, a joint thing and we'll just work out who did it? <laughs> What I find particularly interesting is President Obama's very public response to all of this. During his annual year-end press conference, Obama claims that Sony made a mistake in caving to North Korean hackers. He added that the United States will respond proportionally to the cyber attack at a place and time we choose. Later, he says, we cannot have a society in which some dictator someplace can start imposing censorship here in the United States. The uh, political version of, I'm going to punch you, but you don't know when. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. White House officials treated the situation as a serious national security matter. The next day, things start to get real serious as North Korea threatens to attack the White House, the Pentagon, and the whole U.S. mainland after President Obama says the U.S. will respond proportionally to North Korea's cyber attack. Yeah, this this is just getting a little out of hand. But there were many that doubted North Korea's involvement. Cybersecurity expert Lucas Zakowski said, quote, state-sponsored attackers don't create cool names for themselves like guardians of peace and promote their activities to the public. With the large amount of data stolen, some said it could have easily have been an inside job by a Sony employee with a grudge. Lots of Sony employees with critical access to its computer network were laid off by the company earlier that year, according to ex-employees. And early on, the Sony hackers talked about seeking equality at Sony. This theory was debunked, however, uh, in February of 2016 after analytics firm Noveta issued a joint investigative report into the attack. The report concluded that a well-resourced organization had committed the intrusion and that we strongly believe that the attack was not the work of insiders or hacktivists. And not until very recently, in September 2018, the U.S. Department of Justice issued formal charges related to the Sony hack on North Korean citizen Park Jin Hyak. The Department of Justice contends that Park was a North Korean hacker that worked for the country's reconnaissance general bureau, the equivalent of the CIA. The Department of Justice also asserted that Park was partially responsible for arranging the WannaCry ransomware attack of 2017, having developed part of the ransomware software. 
Wow, that that element of it is not something that I knew. What I want to know is how they actually did it. How did the hackers break in? The attack was conducted using malware. Although Sony was not specifically mentioned in the advisory, US uh, said that attackers used a sophisticated server message block, an SMB, worm tool. This worm tool is known as Bramble that decrypts and automatically moves from one computer to a second computer. Components of the attack included a listening implant, backdoor proxy tool, destructive hard drive tool, and a destructive target cleaning tool. Uh, These components clearly suggest an intent to gain repeated entry, extract information, and be destructive, as well as remove evidence of the attack. So here are some things that we know. The hackers used computer servers in Bolivia, Cyprus, Italy, Poland, Singapore, Thailand, and the United States to attack Sony. And the FBI noted that these IP addresses associated with those servers has been previously linked to North Korea by the FBI. The FBI later noted that the hackers were sloppy with the same use of proxy IP addresses that originated from within North Korea. Internet access is tightly controlled within North Korea, so it feels unlikely that a third party could have hijacked these without allowance from the North Korean government. The computer wiping software used against Sony was also in a 2013 attack against South Korean banks, news outlets, which the FBI attributed to North Korea. The malware was built on computers uh, set to Korean language, which is unusual in the hacking world. So we'll leave a link in the show notes for anybody who wants to uh, read deeper into that. The exact duration of the hack still isn't really known either. US investigators say that the culprits spent at least two months copying critical files. It's, it's, what was it, like 10 terabytes? A hundred. Oh man, <laughs> takes a while to transfer. Uh, an alleged member of the Guardians of Peace, uh, who claimed to have performed the hack, said that they had access for at least a year prior to its discovery in November 2014. It's pretty crazy, it was an entire year and they didn't notice. Yeah, that's... Again, like terabytes and terabytes of information. It's quicker to uh, print it out and ship it on a bus. <laughs> Evidence shows hackers directed by North Korea's cyber unit used aggressive data-wiping malware to steal Sony's corporate secrets and then erase the company's computer files. Internet addresses used by the North Korean government communicated with addresses embedded in the malware used against Sony. Investigators found similarities between the Sony hack and a damaging 2013 cyber assault on South Korean banks and broadcasters. Sony malware used lines of code similar to other malware the FBI knows North Korean actors previously developed. Sources say the digital fingerprints in both of those cases have been traced back to the North. Yeah, that is fascinating. So how did Sony deal with all of this at the time? Like, did they do a good job or could they have done, <laughs> could they have done better? Can you guess? <laughs> <laughs> well, Sony were accused of not really learning from their previous hacks. So after their PlayStation network breach back in 2011, with 77 million registered PlayStation accounts, this was one of the largest data security breaches in history at the time. This breach caused an outage that lasted 23 days and exposed an insane amount of user data, most of which was not encrypted, including passwords. So while... Hardening a corporate network as large as Sony's is really difficult. You would think that by 2014, the company would have really bolstered its security and learnt from this, especially because the hack in 2011 was considered to be very basic and easily protected against. But come 2014, it was found that Sony still did not have an advanced malware protection system that would prevent these types of attacks. And this is something you would have thought they would have considered in the wake of their previous breach. 
a security expert for the studio once said he was not interested in spending 10 million in resources to avoid a possible 1 million in loss. Many were saying that this was a corporate silo structure problem as the gaming and movie sides of the company were kept very separate. And even if they did learn valuable lessons from that 2011 breach, they were not communicated and implemented company-wide. Um, so regarding the 2011 hack, a security expert said, from that moment on, their CIO should have implemented corporate-wide protection measures and beefed up InfoSec training for employees that would be standardised across the organisation. The tools and techniques they decided to use to protect the public-facing PlayStation Network was a reactive approach. It was completely reactive, not proactive. But to be fair to Sony, in 2014, Joseph Damarest from the FBI's cyber division commented saying the level of sophistication of the attack was extremely high and he believes the malware that was used would have slipped or probably gotten past 90% of net defences that are out there today. But to me, there's kind of still enough evidence to suggest that Sony underinvested in their security and you have to assume that major hacks keep happening to them because of inconsistencies in their security systems. And many probably could have forgiven the security intrusion if they would have had, as we like to call it, a code brown response plan. <laughs> but their lack of response plan really hurt them here. As a quick side note, because I think this is also important, Sony hired a famed litigator who ended up sending a letter to news outlets demanding that they delete and not publish any stolen information that had been given to them by the hackers. Um, and this really raised kind of very complex ethical questions, particularly for journalists and the media promoting the details found in these documents. People were questioning, were these journalists facilitating the hackers or did they have a right to publish? So this didn't help the skew from the press towards Sony. It also kind of muddied the waters because this free speech reasoning was the exact argument for making the interview in the first place. Today, Sony lawyers sent an official letter to press outlets, including Bloomberg News, telling us to destroy any documents that we possess. To be honest, that this does raise a lot of troubling ethical issues here. You know, what is newsworthy? What is just gossip? What is intended to embarrass and what is intended to inform? I think everyone is okay with gossip. It's what sells. But this gossip was obtained illegally. So doesn't it make journalists who promote it accomplices? Journalists are accessories to this kind of thing all the time, though. People sign non-disclosure agreements and then promptly pick up the phone or arrange a meeting with a reporter uh, so that the information that they want to make public becomes public, even if it's subject to a legal agreement. That's journalism. You're trying right. to get information that people often don't, don't want the want public, to, public. To, to know. Yeah, exactly. This is just that kind of situation on steroids. Exactly, okay. yes. Although Sony seems to be uh, trying to control the narrative now. That's why this letter from lawyers, that's why you keep seeing in statements the repetition of the phrase stolen documents. They're trying to emphasize that they are not the villains here, they are the victims. Yeah, I mean, the the, the interview is not a movie that, that screams free speech. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of screams like they had a gimmick of an idea and then they got hit for it, it seems. So how hard were Sony hit by all of this? Like, how does this epic plot of twists and turns and, you know, comedic villains conclude? I mean, it was an image disaster at the highest levels, uh, one that Sony executives profusely apologized for internally and externally. But the attack also highlighted a major impairment 
at Sony that the company had no plan to handle a digital disaster of this or any magnitude. Sony chief exec uh, Michael Linton told employees, there is no playbook for us to turn to. If you recall, Sony took down all computers and employees went back to good old-fashioned pen and paper. Unable to make electronic payments, employees were given checks printed on machines that had sat in storage for years. Some 6,000 employees ditched their corporate laptops for notepads and sent sensitive business emails using their personal Gmail accounts after their corporate accounts were compromised. So it's not surprising that three weeks into the hack, a class action lawsuit was filed against the studio by former employees claiming that Sony took inadequate safeguards to protect their personal data. The complaint read, An epic nightmare much better suited to a cinematic thriller than to real life is unfolding in slow motion for Sony's current and former employees. It's a bit sensationalist, but, you know, it's also not necessarily inaccurate. Uh, Leaked emails also revealed that Lionsgate executives wanted to meet Sony CEO to, quote, toss around ideas about a possible merger or acquisition. And obviously, the racial remarks made by Amy Pascal, Sony's chief, was a PR nightmare and only added fuel to an already large fire. Cleaning up the mess of the attack was said to have cost Sony $15 million, uh, so that money could have easily been spent on preventative measures, right? While that sounds like a considerable sum, it's still less than half of what was earned from the movie The Interview. So that's kind of sobering. The losses Sony incurred from shelving the release of The Interview were well above $100 million at this point, so what goes around comes around, I guess. So Amy Pascal eventually stepped down as co-chairman of Sony Pictures Entertainment, but she went on to launch her own production venture with Sony backing. So it doesn't exactly sound like there was much impact to her at all. Her company, Pascal Pictures, made its debut in 2016 with the Ghostbusters reboot. Well, nice fun fact, Ben. (laughs) (laughs) The cyber attack on Sony Pictures is one of the most destructive ever directed against a U.S.-based company. It's a public relations disaster, the likes of which Hollywood has really never seen. This hack attack is hugely embarrassing for Sony because Sony is the only movie studio that's owned by a technology company. So far, Sony losing millions. Sony definitely can bounce back from this. It's going to take time. It's not going to just take months. It may take years. If you look at how much they would have made from this movie, do you think that it was worth it? They've probably lost, just in the terms of recovery of these computers, millions of dollars over the past week. And they're going to be losing more and more money as they have to invest in protecting themselves and shoring themselves up against the next attack. They're facing losses that far exceed the value of any one comedic documentary. You were supposed to come before. I was. For a film called The Interview. I was, yeah. And then they canceled the movie. And yeah. so. Uh, it seemed weird to do press. It would seem weird to promote a movie that wasn't coming out. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we made a movie making fun of a guy, and then the guy we were making fun of told them not to release it, and so they didn't. <laughs> yeah. Which is a good lesson, I think, for the world. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, yeah. You know, as much as I like kind of the, the freedom to express anything that I want and, you know, freedom of speech and, and stuff like that, was this movie really worth all this trouble? I think that it... So I think a question we could ask is, would this have happened anyway? Like was, was, the, was the interview the catalyst for this or was this something that was already in the works and was was going to happen regardless I just, yeah i just can't see why they would have done this without the making of the interview like what would be the motive i think that's exactly right yeah this you know the security vulnerabilities were there but this was the 
this was the catalyst, really, wasn't it? So as a, as a bonus fun fact, uh, less than a month following the attack, North Korea re- reportedly lost its connection to the internet. Although the United States government didn't take credit, if you remember, President Obama announced that the United States would carry out a proportional response in light of the Sony attack. Uh, something to think about. <laughs> Food for thought. Yeah, knocking out the internet of an entire country is a proportional response. Is quite amusing. Yeah. A proportional response to Seth Rogen. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> Seth Rogen was kind of publicly making jokes about North Korea's response even before the movie was actually made, which it seems like he like forecast this and he almost like egged them on to do it. Yeah. Just take a listen to this. We've been told there's a good chance North Korean hackers have already downloaded it from the Sony servers and watched the movie, so he may have seen it already. <laughs> so it does mean that they owe us, like, $14. They do owe us $14. Yeah. I, if there's one thing I won't stand for, it's piracy. Part of me thinks that, you know, the the movie would not have been as big as it was, anywhere near as big as it was, without all this kind of cybersecurity theater around it. Yeah, this thing would have just, like vanished into mediocre obscurity otherwise forgettable cinema it would have been at least four pages on netflix right just scrolling right through there it's that one film that's always in your list but you're never quite ever going to get around to watching it let's move on to the giveaway so we had loads of entries for this one it was really fun going through them all um it was actually really difficult to pick a winner wasn't it Matt? yeah i mean i've, I've got to look up some of my favorites now i, I really have to sorry I, I just have to read some of them out i'm not going to give credit sorry i'm, I'm just going to read some out in line like poetry uh super polar element fan easy umbrella utilize array Oh, there's just some gross silkworm lover touching. Oh, and and for that one, I was like, Ew. for that one, I was like, no, that that can't be a, a one that has actually been generated. But no, I, I they've taken a screenshot like cuddly burrito in prison liking. Oh, I like that one. Sunken ornament, lustrous copy boy. <laughs> oh, that one was so good. So uh, do we need a drum roll? Who did you pick as the winner? So we actually went with two winners. So the first winner is Category Shell on Twitter for naming our episode Warmth, Sure, Doubtful, Honk. And he says, doubtful honking for those cases when you don't know when to honk or not. (laughs) That's a good one. I like that. So our second winner is pretty special, Cyan, for actually creating a recipe password generator. So uh, I think we should all go and test this out because it's uh, pretty awesome. Yeah, so they took all the mentions, all all the times we've mentioned food in the podcast, added that as sort of the word list to generate uh, wordless passwords here. No, no, this is just a random password generator with with food. They haven't gone through all the episodes and every time we manage food. (laughs) They did that to the first one, yeah. Uh, all right, well, I've completely uh, misunderstood. You thought someone yes. had gone through yes. the all episodes and every time we <laughs> man- mentioned food, they'd added it to this. Yeah, because I was like, well, okay, lemonade, hummus, egg roll, beer. I was like, clearly, we. I'm pretty sure we've talked about all of those things. <laughs> <laughs> tequila, cardamom, pancakes, pizza. Like, absolutely. When have we ever mentioned tequila? You weren't around. <laughs> Anna and I were talking about your drinking problem. So that's that's one. right. Squash kiwi stew spaghetti. We were talking about squash on like two episodes ago. Like, I mean, oh, Rude definitely spoke about lobster. This one, beer, lobster, avocado, strawberry. Yeah, 
venison chowder walnut bisque. That sounds amazing. I think we have to, you know, as brilliant as this is, we do have to add a disclaimer that, you know, the, the food word list shouldn't be used for actual passwords. Yeah. But she is going to win some one password swag because that's awesome. That's true. All right. I think we have time for the final what the phrase. Oh, are you ready? Oh, we've been umming and ahhing because, you know, it's coming to the end of, of the season. I don't know why we do seasons anymore because, like, we're just going to continue making episodes after this. But Yeah, but it's fun. That's an aside, right? We, we're going to mix it up. We, we thought long and hard because killing what the phrase is, you know, it's, it's really difficult because I've had so much fun trying to guess at what these phrases are. <laughs> um, but I, I think we have to. I think we have to just keep on, keep on moving forward. And uh, yeah, so we've got some, oh, such good things uh, planned for the future episodes. Yeah, hopefully it will be equally as good, if not better. Yeah. So Anna, what a phrase. Oh, it's the last one. Right. Without getting emotional, it's my cottage is at the edge. <laughs> this sounds rude as well. Why? Have, it, oh, this <laughs> this sounds like either something that you say when you walk up to another spy. My cottage is at the edge. <laughs> oh, no. Did you like my spy accent there? I actually thought that was quite good. <laughs> it was a, it was a little bit there. Yeah. So this is a U- Ukrainian phrase. Um, Does it mean like living in danger? I, 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 yeah, that's kind of where I was going. I'm living in a constant state of my cottages at the edge. <laughs> right. Just like I'm I'm at the end of my end of my rope. Like I'm at wit's end here. I'm losing it, Jerry. What do we got? That's that's where I'm going with this. Do yeah. you want to have any more guesses? Uh, does it mean that my interior design styles are futuristic? <laughs> Cutting edge. <laughs> my cottage <laughs> is at the edge, let me tell you. I like where you're going with it, but no. <laughs> <laughs> I've got some red walls. I've got pink carpet. No, that's all, that's all I've got. I've got death and interior design. So this is actually an interesting one because it's a phrase that's kind of changed its meaning over time. So initially, this actually read, my cottage is at the edge, so I meet all enemies first, meaning you're responsible for all problems of the town and will be impacted by them first. But after the Russian occupation of Ukraine, this saying kind of changed its meaning to mean the exact opposite. So today, this phrase means... My cottage is at the edge, so it's not my business, and I don't care about anything. Wow. Mm, that's uh... <laughs> political. Yeah. Am I depressing? <laughs> this is the last what the phrase, Anna? <laughs> Propaganda-ish, but you know. <laughs> All right. And you thought, I'm going to bring up a phrase that's about the Russian occupation of the Ukraine. Well, that's, that's it, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this last <laughs> what the phrase. <laughs> Love you, Matt. Love you, Anna. All right. Love you, Rue. Love you, Anna. Love ya. Bye. Bye-bye.